Welcome back to another episode of Cognitive Revolution. I am Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So uh, I have a really interesting guest on this week. I'm super excited for you to hear this interview. Uh, he's, he's a really cool guy, uh, and I've wanted to talk to him for a long time. Uh, you'll hear a little bit more about that later. Uh, but, but the sort of main thing that I think we talk about is intrinsic motivation. And, um, you know, so I think intrinsic motivation is this big thing, uh, especially sort of in, in, in research and in graduate school and all this sort of stuff. So doing, doing one's PhD or, you know, sort of similar aspects of your career, it's really different than, than a lot of other things because there's really, for the most part, no one looking over your shoulder to tell you, this is what you have to do, this is what you have, when you have to do it by, and uh, you know, here's what it's going to look like. If you just do X, Y, and Z, then you're going to be successful in the long term. There's really no way for people to, to sort of to specify that, and uh, unless you have a really micromanaging boss, which is its own sort of issue, you, you're going to have to provide uh, the sort of motivation and structure to get things done uh, for yourself. And I think that that is very difficult to do because it does not come naturally to most people. And it is not something that we talk about very much. And it's certainly not something that we teach. And for most of our lives, certainly up until uh, something like graduate school, you uh, have lots of external constraints, right? You have you have assignments, you have uh, bosses, you have deadlines, and what does it look like to be successful? Well, you know, you get an assignment, you do it. You get a grade on it. You uh, have a deadline, you meet it, uh, and uh, you have a, a boss, and, and if they are satisfied with your work, then, well, there you go. And so without external constraints, there's really no feedback uh, for making you better as well as holding you accountable, right? If you don't turn something in, if you don't read a paper, if you don't do any of this stuff, your life is still going to go on for the next, you know, however long it's going to be, five years, and you're not going to find out, you're not going to get real feedback until uh, you uh, are on the tenure track job market and finding that uh, it's not turning out the way you wanted to. And so this is something that I, I think about a lot. So I... I I've been working on sort of developing structures to self-motivate, to sort of harness intrinsic motivation and, and give yourself sort of um, the illusion of external constraints, uh, you know, external constraints imposed by yourself. I've been working on this for a couple of years now, and there's, there's definitely a lot of things that I have, um, I've improved at. So one, one big thing that I've done is I have this calendar set up. Um, I'm looking at it right now. And uh, the idea is that uh, I'm very particular about, uh, you know, saying this is what I need to get done and uh, this is when I'm going to do it. And so I've tried a lot of different things uh, to sort of uh, find a, you know, somewhat optimal way to do this. And the, the sort of, I think, big problem of it is that you need... Uh, a, to specify some way of saying this is what I would do in the ideal case if I were totally focused, and B, uh, this is, uh, you know, sort of uh, how I'm going to evaluate how close I got to that ideal. And so uh, to, to, to that end, I have two calendars that I use. Uh, they're both in Google Calendar. 
And the first one is what I call planned. And so this is something that I do at the beginning of every week. And it is, I go through and I say, okay, so at this time of day, I am going to, uh, uh, you know, do, uh, do X. And then this time of day, I'm going to do Y. And so I'm looking at it right now. And so, for example, uh, this morning, my day started at, uh, or the, the plan for my day was to start at, uh, with breakfast at 7 a.m. And then do meditation at 7.30 and start working on uh, podcast at 8 and then sort of go on from there. And uh, so that's on my planned calendar. And then on actual, which is my second calendar, this is side by side on the same day in a different color. Uh, I, I show what I actually ended up doing and I, and I update this throughout the day. And um, so in, in actuality, I, I had my breakfast at 7.30. That went a little past 8 and then I started uh, working on the podcast uh, at 8.15 and completely skipped meditation today. And uh, so that's uh, the sort of idea here is that you want to say, here is what I uh, would like to do today if I were going to be optimally productive based off of what I know my responsibilities are and what I want to get done and all that stuff. Uh, but then, of course, you never reach that. It's 100% of days you uh, fail to reach that that ideal. And so you need a way to, um, there's, a number of, there's a number of things that happen here. One, so for me, I get really down on myself uh, when I say, oh, this is what I need to get done and then fall short of that. I find that that kind of, uh, I really get angry at myself for being less productive or whatever it is than I, than I feel like I should be. And so having this actual calendar, it, it gives you credit for the things that you did do. Whereas if you just have the ideal calendar, the planned calendar, then um, you can you can sort of get, uh, you know, you're, you're just sort of aware of really only how poorly you did comparison to the sort of platonic ideal rather than um, uh, the things you actually did. And so you can, with this actual calendar, you can actually look back and say, oh, well, this is what I did. And it actually, at the end of the week, you know, sort of amounts to, to, to a good deal, right? And then you can also see if there are consistent sort of qualitative mismatches between what you're planning to do and um, uh, what you actually do, right? So if I, uh, you know, have on my calendar, as I do every day uh, at 7 a.m., I'm going to have breakfast. And then if at every day this week, the actual time that I have breakfast is 7.30, well, then I need to think about sort of what what is the sort of mismatch there? Is it a problem with my planning? Am I not going to bed early enough? Uh, am I not, you know, sort of doing whatever it is to set myself up for uh, the thing that I want to do there. And uh, so this, this is something uh, that, that I use to sort of uh, harness that intrinsic motivation because it is a system of accountability, right? It's saying here is uh, what I'm aiming for and then here is the credit for how close I actually got to that. And so in the absence of someone looking over your shoulder, in the absence of... Um, uh, you know, sort of deadlines and, and all this sort of stuff. This can be a really effective way, certainly something that I've found very useful for sort of structuring one's time and, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of maximizing uh, productivity when there is not that external impetus to be productive necessarily. And so uh, if you want to know more about that, I have a write-up on my uh, website. Uh, and if you have any questions, you can also uh, email me, or reach out to me on Twitter, uh, any anything like that. So uh, you know, there's a uh, another thing that we touch on in this uh, interview 
which is about reaching out to people via email. And that's something that my guest brings up a couple times as something that he did to great effect and were some of the things that uh, got him into the positions that he ended up in in his career that were among the most lucrative. And his message is sort of, okay, reach out to people via email. Just do it. Like it, it, it doesn't cost you that much. And you'll be surprised how often people are receptive to that and will respond, even very high-level people who seem like they ought to have better things to do. Because uh, at the end of the day, you know, most email that people receive is it's just garbage, right? And if you reach out to someone and you express genuine appreciation for what they do and uh, that you would like to be a part of it in whatever capacity, whether you're just sort of uh, you know, reaching out to, to talk to them or to become a part of their organization or whatever it is, it 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 uh, it, it is surprisingly rare, for even people in high level positions, to get that. And that's certainly something that I've found here doing this podcast. Right, each one of these people, for the most part, is someone that I've never interacted uh, with in any capacity, let alone in any meaningful way. And uh, everything, uh, everyone that I talk to here. I have initially reached out to via email, and uh, this is something I'll talk about more in a later episode, exactly how I do this. But, um, you know, just just being genuinely appreciative of their work, saying, this is what I'm trying to do. Here's, here's uh, you know, where I'm coming from in a way that they can appreciate your motivation for doing what you're doing. And then if you have an ask or if you, you know, have a suggestion or whatever it is, putting that in there, uh, that is something that uh, people genuinely want to respond to. And I think that um, sometimes we talk ourselves out of it because it's like, oh, well, it's not really worth this person's time, who knows, whatever. And so uh, I would encourage more people to do that as much as possible uh, because the worst thing that happens is you don't hear back from them. Uh, and uh, who knows, if you email them again, then, well, maybe it works out that second time. Actually, that's, that's happened to me a lot on... Um, this show is that a number of people who I reached out to the first time never heard back. A couple weeks later, sent a follow-up email, and they're like, "Oh yeah, 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 I was meaning to to do this. Let's let's set a time." Uh, so um, that that's a really effective strategy that I do think is quite easy, but yet quite undervalued. So uh, if you want to connect more with me and my work, uh, a, a really great way is my newsletter newsletter, which is Friendship Friday. And uh, I'd like to explain a little bit about what the idea behind that is, which is that, um, so I th I've found that making and uh, keeping strong friendships as an adult can be very difficult because there's a lot of forces working against you. Um, you know, in, in high school or earlier on in life, you have a lot of parallel experiences with someone or with, with the, the people around you. You know, uh, in adult life, so, I, I mean, if you look at it, the two things that, that create strong friendships are shared experiences and then shared suffering, right? And so uh, when we look at adult life, there's just not a lot of, of, of those things to a very consistent level, right? You don't tend to go through experiences on a, on a regular basis with anyone besides your coworkers or your long-term friends who you already have some sort of standing with, and that's assuming you guys even live in the same city, right? So adult life just isn't set up in the same way 
that sort of earlier life is to create friendships that really bond over something uh, in in uh, you know sort of over time. So it's it's a fundamentally difficult problem, and yet uh, even though it's it's one of the most important aspects of our life, our sort of social life uh, that's you know above our acquaintances and coworkers, but below perhaps our, our closest uh, romantic uh, uh, or, or familial relationships. There's really a lack of sort of uh, writing and research and and all the, at least you know talking about the research about what exactly the best way to go about all that stuff is. And so anyway, the the whole idea behind the newsletter is that that is my way of um, uh, sort of addressing that. And I think it's an important uh, issue. And there's a lot of interesting stuff to say about it. Certainly a lot of research to talk about. So if you're interested in that, you can check out uh, the newsletter on my website, codycommerce.com/newsletter and subscribe there. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Cody Commerce. Um, you know, my, my website has a bunch of my writing as well as more podcasts on it, codycommerce.com. And then uh, you can also subscribe to Cognitive Revolution on whichever platform you may be listening through. So anyway, uh, let's get to my guest today. He uh, studies the psychology of climate change, how uh, you know people think about big risks, and if they don't believe you know sort of evidence about climate uh, change, what what is the what is preventing them doing that? Whatever you know, all the, all those sort of uh, big questions at the intersection of policy, psychology, um, uh, and you know societal issues. He's uh, uh, in the Department of Psychology at Cambridge, and he directs the Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab. And uh, he does a lot of talking about his research to normal people, of course, because that's sort of you know who it most directly affects, and there's obvious connections there. And he's done a really good job at developing that through through his career. Um, and he's been named a rising star by the Association for Psychological Science, and he received the Sage Early Career Award from the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. Um, and then I actually have a, a, a personal connection to him. He's one of the, the people that I didn't necessarily meet for the first time via cold email. And it was that uh, uh, he actually rejected my application to work with him in uh, graduate school. And there's a funny story behind this. Uh, very lighthearted. I actually uh, learned a lot because my application was as it turned out, completely inappropriate for what it was supposed to be. Uh, because, you know, I'm from the US, he uh, is a professor in the UK, and I had absolutely no fucking idea how it was supposed to look to submit uh, an application there. Which uh, was sort of sad for my result at Cambridge, but it was happy because I did end up down the street at Oxford. Uh, so I submitted a relatively successful application there, and part of the reason that I was able to do that was because Sander took the time to say, uh, hey man, thanks for for the, uh, the application here, but you kind of got it wrong. And so I owe a lot to him through that. And uh, I've been meaning to talk to him, and um, then my friend Steve, uh, who worked with him at Cambridge, I was like, oh, I'd be really interested to hear him on the show. And uh, so I was like, yeah, okay, it's time to do this. So uh, thanks, Steve. And thank you to Sander Vander Linden, who is my guest today. And without further ado, uh, here is our interview. Sander, thanks for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. Great. So I've, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, and because I am eminently professional, I want to start off with a professional question. Um, has anyone ever told you that you look like a, a sort of cross between uh, Paul Rudd and Ben Affleck? <laughs> 
that's that's quite that's quite an amazing <laughs> coincidence you know <clears throat> when i was um a graduate student at uh, yale i think i can't be sure but i i highly suspect it was one of or, or several of my fellow graduate students who um enrolled me in a name contest um and and for some reason they put me in as a as um uh, paul rod's doppelganger oh and, yeah and you know uh um, i think i lost to somebody named baby swinger but <laughs> but you know it was uh i get that a lot for some reason it's quite it's quite funny you know when i think about I like paul rod as an actor so i think you know i think it's fine i'm not necessarily um you know taken aback by the comparison uh but uh yeah you're definitely not the first to, uh, well, to wait so first i mean so it's it's clearly not a coincidence there's a clear causal mechanism here which is the fact that you look like paul rudd um but the other thing is that yeah it's a i mean it's a great thing if you were going to select the people on the planet who you would want to look like that one's probably up there uh very highly for two reasons one because uh, he has aged incredibly well. He, uh, <laughs> uh, he just turned 50 recently. He looks like he's fucking he's 35. 50? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he, I mean, uh, in, in, like, so it's not only a compliment that you look like him. It's also a compliment that, you know, he looks like you because he's, he's, he's a good deal older than you are. Um, <laughs> that's right. I like the Ben Affleck kind of mix, though. That, so that's that, a, that's yeah. a new one. So there's a I, little bit of, of of maybe it's a little bit more Casey Affleck in there. But at any rate, there's there's a whole <laughs> lot of good looking whatever is going on in there. Uh, that well, you thank could, you. you could, I appreciate it. You could do a whole hell of a lot worse than that. So, <laughs> um, at any rate, uh, now that we've covered the sort of professional credentials, let's get into the, some of the other stuff. Yeah. Um, so why don't we start? Uh, can you tell me what does your average day look like? My average day? That's a good question. I think, you know, to some extent, my days are a bit chaotic and um, not so average. So maybe it's, it's kind of hard to describe an average day. I'll, I'll, I'll attempt to, to offer what I, what I think my average day looks like. Yeah, let's um, hear it. Usually, you know, I get up. Um, not not too early to be honest. Uh, you know, I'm I'm really a night owl. I do some of my best work, you know, in the middle of the night. Um, so you know, I get up in the morning. I have some breakfast. I'm usually late. I'm usually late uh, for appointments, meetings, uh, teaching. So I'm always kind of you know at the point where I need to be rushing uh, to uh, to something. So I get up. I rush out the door. Uh, go to my meeting, um, and then. I usually have some free time to, you know, to meet with my students or do some research, do some, you know, interviews, podcasts in between, uh, film conversations. Um, and, um, you know, then I, I typically forget uh, to have lunch, uh, which is another, you know, uh, something I'm trying to improve about my daily structure. Because um, I tend to have a lot of meetings on a, on a day-to-day basis, which is great for, interacting with people and exchanging perspectives but sometimes not so great for making progress on on things like you know writing or or research um and so then i'll grab you know a quick bite uh and then uh i'll go home and actually you know after after dinner i'll get i'll get active with uh with research and ideas and that's kind of why i start developing uh writing on papers doing analyses thinking about things because everything kind of quiets down after 5 p.m., um, 
Not entirely, because I have a lot of collaborators in the United States, and they start emailing me, you know, after 5 p.m. when they wake up. So that kind of keeps me keeps me going as well. But but it's really, you know, during that time that uh, uh, that I start thinking about you know ideas and, and research and, and well into you know midnight and and and, and sort of later. Uh, and then some days I'll be you know teaching and at the university most of the time, and some days I'll just uh, I'll be at home because it'll, it'll be more efficient for me to get stuff done. Uh, whilst I'm uh, working from my my home office, um, and then I travel a lot too, um, and so it's kind of unpredictable. You know, some 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 weeks I'm traveling, some some days I'll be at the university all day, and some days I'll I'll be at home. So what I like about the job, though, it's always exciting, always something new, and and really never never reliving the same day twice, so to speak. So I'm I'm interested in the night owl thing. Uh, and and one of the the sort of key things here is that there I like in my estimation talking to a lot of different people about this people split pretty evenly on morning people versus night people. However, society is set up for morning people, and so a lot of these night people, as they have real adult jobs, have to transition into trying to become closer to a morning person. So. How have you managed to stay with your night owl sensibilities, and was has that ever been tough to to sort of figure out how to negotiate that into your into your work life? Absolutely, I think it's quite tough actually, and and you know my uh, my wife has she's a, a morning person, total opposite uh, personality. She'll get up at five six in the morning, do some of her best work then, and then you know have a have a structured day. Um, and has tried to convince me that that's the better way to to lead your life, so to speak. And I think all of the most of the research agrees with that that it's healthier um, to you know get up early in the morning, do work, then come home, rest, and then get up early again. I think it's it's uh, perhaps for both physical and mental health, it's it's a better lifestyle. Unfortunately, I as you said, you know some people have or now owls, you know they're they're not morning people, and I found it difficult to adjust. I've tried, I've tried different things. Um, sometimes I can do it, uh, particularly when I have days that are filled with uh, meetings and and teaching, and there's a lot of activity between nine and five. Then you know I go to bed early, um, and then I wake up early, prepare my lectures. Uh, you know, do the lectures, do teaching, meet with my students, have other meetings, and then go home and, and, and kind of, you know, stay in that rhythm. But as soon as I don't have teaching or other obligations, I go back into my, my usual night owl mode. I'll stay up, you know, do music at night or, or, or work, research, um, all, all sorts of things. I'm, I'm very active at night. And it's always been that way. When I was a kid, you know, when I was 12, 13, 16, 17, I would, I would have ideas in the middle of the night, you know, I would think, like, oh, you know, and, and from this, you could probably tell how old I am. Um, you know, I, I had a computer and the internet was, uh, you know, it was, it was GeoCities websites and, and everything was, was, you know, relatively early days. Uh, and I have, wouldn't be cool to learn how to program a website uh, using, you know, HTML or some other primitive, you know, uh, language. And I decided to do that at uh, 1, 1 a.m. And I was done at 7 a.m. in the morning and I created my first page. And then I went to bed at, you know, noon and my whole schedule was messed up the whole summer. But that's that's kind of how I've always operated. I just operate at crazy hours. And that's where I get some of my inspiration and do, do my best work. And that really hasn't really changed. And I think it becomes more and more difficult um, to adjust to that in, in sort of professional lifestyles, as you were saying. So I do my best to adjust, but when I'm given the opportunity, 
you know, my 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 inner self will rebel and 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 the night owl will come out. But you know, if I have to do it, I'll be a morning person. But I prefer not to. Yeah, yeah. It seems like to me the important principle is um, that you have to know which blocks of your day people are going to leave you the hell alone for, right? Because that's that's the crucial thing. Whether you're a, a morning person or a night person, uh, part of it is your own uh, rhythm and when you're most focused. But it's also, uh, you know, people, like you said, aren't going to be emailing you or asking for your time or scheduling podcasts and all that sort of stuff. And so knowing when you're... Uh, sort of intersection of of optimal, you know, sort of cognitive focus and the logistics of when people are going to ask for stuff from you. That to me is the sort of key principle. And and if, if you if you can sort of figure that out right, you can still survive as a night owl in you know morning person society. Yeah, definitely. And as you said, you know, it's about when that that sort of optimal quiet time. Because after you know around dinner time here, UK time. You know, U.S. colleagues will will be active, but even you know around right. midnight, that's that's where there's total, you know, total peace, and that's yeah. where I really I notice that my brain gets actually less foggy. As most people get tired and want to go to bed, I just it becomes less foggy. You know, during the day, you know, especially 4 p.m., I'm struggling to operate uh, a little bit, so it's very nice to take a break and, and do a podcast. But you know, where where some other where other people get tired and and fuzzy, I, I kind of you know have a, um, a moment where I'm you know totally cognitively aware and ready to, to do some, some thinking. Okay, so here's a question about that. So one thing that I've seen borne out in research is that, um, you know, so you have your time where you're most focused, which is, uh, you know, for your wife and for, for me, that's the morning. For you, it sounds like that's the evening. But um, uh, there is this sort of almost counterintuitive corollary to that, which is that when you're trying to do creative work, which is not necessarily as focused, but is connecting the dots across, um, you know, disparate uh, market verticals or whatever you're thinking about. Um, that can uh, actually be more effective to do when you uh, are not at your sort of heightened, optimal, uh, you know, preferred morning or evening time. Do you find that at all in your work that there, that like maybe your your more wacky or creative ideas come to you um, in the morning when you're sort of less fresh? Um. Uh, that's a hard one for me. I think sometimes stuff comes to me while I'm dreaming, which is another another really? way that you know my life is hijacked by by uh, by ideas. But by often when I have a problem during the day I can't figure out, I will just dream about it and I'll wake up with an idea. Is that um, like lucid dream? Are you in control of that, or is that just it? You're it's just percolating in there while you're on while you're asleep. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm just I, mostly I'm, I'm percolating. I, so lucid dreaming, this is a whole side thing, but but I used to do that when I was younger uh, a lot, uh, the, the sort of exercising lucid dreaming, just because I, I found that comforting, that the idea that you can control uh, at least the initial narratives of of, uh, of your dreams. But but now it's more, um, you know, it is just percolating. I'll, I'll go to bed thinking about it, and then you know, I'll, I'll, the solution kind of just comes to you in, in various ways, and I'll wake up remembering it most of the time. And then, you know, that's kind of where I have an idea uh, in the morning. I will tell you, though, that the rest of the time, uh, mornings for me are, you know, are, are rough. I'm not I'm not operating very well. It will take me hours to adjust to Earth, you know. Um, <laughs> I roam around in the morning quite uh, quite confused for a while, and then, you know, I need to have some coffee and, and get in touch with reality before I can, I'm ready for the day. 
Um, you know, that's actually, even as a natural morning person, something that I've been working on recently is that uh, I find that there are, there's sort of like a, uh, in terms of activities that I do in the morning, there is a large range of probabilities for if I'm actually going to wake up and get my ass to do something. For example, if I try and start off my morning going to the gym, which requires, you know, putting on clothes, going into the outside world, it's a very low probability event that I'm actually going to successfully do that at seven o'clock. Whereas I've been starting my mornings recently by doing the simplest possible thing that a person who has just uh, reawakened back into uh, conscious existence uh, can do, which is I cook myself some some eggs and toast, and then after that I can accomplish more complex cognitive tasks. Um, but sort of this this stacking of okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the simplest thing, and then I'm gonna build up to the um, more uh, ambitious things like going to the gym, which I do somewhat later in the morning. Uh, that that has been a pretty successful strategy for me. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um... I think for, for a lot of people, it kind of works that way, that you could have built up to it. Um, maybe I'm slightly odd. When, when I do wake up early in the morning, when I'm sort of trying to be a morning person, I'll, um, you know, because when, when I, I mean, I'll be walking around and, and you know, um, trying to adjust myself when I don't have anything urgent. But, but when I'm working, I'll wake up at, at, at you know, six or, or, or seven, um, open my laptop and start working right away. You know, no, no breakfast, no, no getting used to anything. I'll just like dive into it. And what I really love is the moment where I get all of my work done and I look at the clock and it's, you know, it's nine or it's 10 AM. And I'm like, now I kind of understand the joy of being a morning person that, you know, you, you have all of your stuff done and the whole day is still ahead of you. And I think that that's quite an amazing feeling. Um, and then the day lasts so long for me. I'm like, wow, this day was, uh, was, was very long. Cause for a night person, I think the day just gets away from you. It's late in the afternoon and you know, everything is kind of, you're scheduling everything later and, and, and time just gets away from you. And that's a bit stressful. And I think the morning sort of version of things is a lot more relaxing in a way. And I can appreciate uh, how that works for people. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, go back and, and sort of talk about a little bit more about your early career experiences. Um, sure. So maybe uh, if, if you're thinking back to undergrad or graduate school, was there a sort of time when you decided that you were going to take the grad school route and that you wanted to sort of pursue uh, psychology as a profession? No, absolutely not. When I was when I was an undergraduate, I I really didn't think about becoming an academic or um, going into research or, or any of those aspirations. No, when I was an undergraduate, um, I thought the proper thing to do was to get a job after after you graduate. Now I will say that that I really liked college, so I did enjoy it very much, much more so than you know some of my friends. Um, I, I really liked learning, um, you know, I, 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 am originally from the Netherlands, but I spend quite some time in, in California and appreciating the differences between European and American universities. And one of the things I loved about how they do things in the States was that, you know, in a consumer psychology class, we would go out to a store uh, as part of the class and, and observe people and write down notes. And it was very interactive and, you know, in Europe, it's kind of more. Here's a here's a here's a book and a three-hour exam at the end, uh, and and you know, it's we, we don't really 
uh, tech, what you're doing in, in between. It's just a, a different way of uh, uh, how some, some of the educational um, systems operate, whereas I think in Europe it's very, very interactive and you have these sort of pop quizzes and you get, you know, points for attendance. Uh, so things work, <laughs> things work quite, quite differently, but I liked it. And, I, you know, I got used to it and, and, and I like this sort of interactive model of learning and it really changed the way, maybe even the way I do research and the way that I think about things now, because, you know, just observing how people buy stuff and, and, and you know, I was given a book by Bob Cialdini, Influence. You know, most people, most most of our colleagues know this book, obviously, and and it really revolutionized my way of thinking about social psychology and and observing people in the wild. And I really, I'll never forget that class. And and uh, I thought it was super interesting, but but it didn't lead me to envision a career in academia or as a researcher. It came very late for me. I got a job after. I graduated, did some internships, traveled around, um, you know, doing several kind of jobs actually, and then deciding um, that that wasn't for me, and then doing a master's degree. And only then um, did the idea of, of, of research in academia really became clear to me that that was going to be my my path. And and in some ways, I think it was fortunate because now that I've I've been an academic for you know a good amount of time. I have absolutely no no hesitation and no regrets about my choices. And I feel sometimes when people jump into things, you know, they, they wonder about alternative careers and, and other things they could have done and whether this is the right thing for them. But but I never look back and and I have the sense of certainty that, you know, this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my time and, and that's kind of reassuring to me at least. Uh a couple of things I wanna unpack there. So where were you in California? I was in Northern California, so I was at a place called California State University Chico. Nice. Uh, which, yeah, which you know has a has a certain reputation, uh, but which but, is but, not uh, com- completely foreign to Dutch people. No, no, the, that's right. Uh, the weed reputation that is. <laughs> that's right. So, so you know, it it it, it has a. It, you know, has a particular reputation for. How did you end up there school. from from Netherlands? Yeah, so so I started my my journey at the University of, of Amsterdam, and yeah. they were experimenting with the um, this thing called a double degree program, and so this was new back then, and and really the idea was that you could get you know two degrees um, by spending some time at a at a foreign university going abroad and it was an essential part of the program there was an english-based program program and they um they encouraged you know visits to a partner uh, sort of university and they had a small list of institutions that you could choose from and i had a really good friend is uh, and and um miami was really the place everyone picked that was really the popular place the university of miami and I, I was ranked. It was based on merit, so I was I, fortunately I was ranked pretty high, uh, and so I got I got the pick. And and my friend, you know, I I just I, I found out though that w- if you went to the University of Miami, they were not going to put you up in a hotel, and you didn't get the sort of campus experience. And that really, I thought about that, and that really, that really seemed uninteresting to me. And so I made a deal with my friend. I said, you know, I'll give my Miami spot to you. Um, you know, we, we traded off some uh, uh, some things there, and then I ended up going to uh, to California State University Chico. I met someone from Chico at our university who was who was doing the reverse kind of program, and they really sold me on uh, uh, on the idea. And I don't really know why. I mean, I, I didn't know a lot of the universities that were on the list, and I just kind of ended up there. 
But, you know, when I got there, Northern California, I thought it was beautiful, so different from the Netherlands. You know, it's, the Netherlands is quite flat, right? So you have mountains and creeks and rivers and green stuff and just beautiful. And I really enjoyed uh, my time there so much that I ended up staying there and convincing my university uh, that uh, that was a good idea. And, and it, there was a, a big problem with working out the credit system uh, back back and forth. But, you know, in the end, it all worked out and I got to spend some uh, some time there. That's really cool. So um, let's see. So I'm interested in the jobs that you had after undergraduate. And you said that you got the sort of feeling that um, they didn't work out for you. And so I'm interested, A, why, what do you think was the sort of mismatch there? And then how did you decide from there that, well, okay, I'm going to pursue a master's degree in psychology and that'll sort of put me back on track? It was it was um, not an obvious journey, I would say. You know, I, I got I spent some time volunteering in Boston after I graduated, and and that's where I got some initial ideas about you know what kind of career possibilities that are out there. And I was really inspired by this NGO that I was working for. But then I had to get back to the, to the real world and, and and find a job. And I applied to. Um, uh, to several firms that were essentially, you know, investment banking firms, and and I thought, you know, behavioral economics was getting big then. You know, I was reading about Cass Sunstein and Nudge, and that was just in its infant uh, days at the time, but it was getting really popular. And I thought, you know, I was really interested in in that and and behavioral economics. And so um, I ended up working at a, uh, a bank at Merrill Lynch, uh, in fact, and. Um, now, the reason why, um, you know, that was an obvious choice for me is that, you know, my, some of my family is in the financial and consulting industry. Uh, and, you know, it, it was kind of a stereotypical uh, choice in a way. And I thought that was, you know, kind of what, what I was supposed to do at the time. And I, I did kind of see the benefits of doing it. And so I got this job. And... Um, I quit the next day, so I had I had about eight interviews at Merrill Lynch, eight interviews, uh, and the first day they asked me to do some stuff, and it, it was just really odd. It was a really odd culture. They asked me to do all sorts of quite odd things, and you know my personality was just you know you know I just went to college. I'm not here to you know necessarily get people coffee and and, and do other. Sort of, uh, sort of stuff, and I. Well, what do you mean when you say odd things? They made you do odd things. What sort of odd things did they make you do? Like, for example. Well, for example, yeah, for example, it was it was pouring outside. It was raining. You know, it's the Netherlands, quite rainy, but but it was pouring. And and the uh, the guy who was in charge of the group just said, you know, go and get me an umbrella. <laughs> and, and, you know, they just haze people in these kinds of firms, right? And that's, that's just it. But did they, was their umbrella stand, like, out in the parking lot or something No, like no, I had to go find a shot. And they're in an industrial complex oh. sort of situation. I had to yeah. go and get the metro or the bus and, and to a store. And, um, you know, I did it. And then I came back, <laughs> and I reflected on my behavior. And I thought, you know, that's really not not me. And so yeah. I told them, I said, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity and, and you know, and the, the new car and I had the car keys and it was all fancy. But I said, you know, here, here are the car keys. Here's a contract. Uh, I'm done with this. Um, and they said, you will never, ever get a job at any Merrill Lynch anywhere in the world. Um, and you were like, said, thank God. Yeah. I said, you know what? I'm fine with that. Yeah. Uh, 
And the research, you know, the research, the, the culture was really unpleasant. People were, you know, it was very cutthroat. People were competing with each other. It was not a pleasant environment to be in. Um, so my parents obviously weren't, weren't that happy with, with that choice. Uh, so I quickly got another job at a, at a consulting firm, which was a bit more, you know, research-based, I would say. It was, it was still sort of researching behavioral patterns of financial markets and things like that. So it was remotely interesting to me. Uh, but I wasn't, I wasn't very intrigued by it. I wasn't very good at it. My colleagues, you know, at one point they, they said, Sander, you know, I don't, maybe you need to find, you know, another, another career. I they could see I just wasn't really enjoying it. And I went back into, um, you know, uh, thinking about what I want to do with my life, really. I had an existential, existential crisis quite early on uh, in my life, and I thought, what, what do I need to be doing with my life? And, and do I just want to, you know, I don't want to make people who, you know, who are already rich more money necessarily. Um, and so I thought about what are, what are good things to do with, uh, with your life? And uh, yeah, that kind of um, uh, got me back to psychology and my original interests and passion. And then I decided to pursue a master's degree in uh, in psychology and, and policy or public affairs uh, at the uh, most distant part of our of our country uh, in, in uh, uh, you know it's it's a, it's a three hour train ride which is a long way for the Netherlands <laughs> um, and, um, and wait which I, which uh, which part of the Netherlands is this? The city is called Maastricht. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so it's, it's the oldest city in the Netherlands. It was built by the Romans, and you can kind of see a lot of uh, some remains. So it's a, it's a really cool historical city. Uh, I hadn't really been there much before that, so I kind of moved there. Um, now, my parents, you know, they're lovely, lovely people, but but they didn't really understand the need to, to go and study more after, you know, a bachelor's degree. And so they said, you know, we've uh, we financed a lot of your, you know, studying abroad and and bachelor's degree and you know fair enough they said you've had a job so you know if you want to do graduate studies you figure it out um and uh that kind of that that was that was slightly challenging because i actually didn't have much money um and i had to get you know i was living in in um i was renting a room that was basically part of a uh uh, a house that was outside. So, so the part of the house was outside, but there was an over, over sort of de- there was kind of a deck, um, the plastic thing that was covering the, the 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 roof. So it wasn't you know fully outside, but but that's kind of where I was living. And um, they, I lucked out because I had I had worked for a few years and I filled in my tax returns and turned out, it, it turned out I had paid way. Uh, way too much in taxes, and so they reimbursed me a few thousand euros, um, and that oh, was that's incredible. That's incredible. That was enough to pay rent for a year and finance a degree. You know, in the Netherlands, education is not very expensive, and so um, that was enough to uh, uh, to get me through that uh, next phase of my life. And I I just found out that I really loved you know research, and uh, you know I met some like-minded friends, and you know we were reading papers and. And doing a research dissertation, and a lot of the focus of the degree was on um, the impact of, of, you know, behavioral science and psychology for policy. And so we were modeling, you know, different policy options based on behavioral interventions. And I was just fascinated by that, and uh, ultimately led me to, to, you know, create a PhD proposal and, and submit that and, and land on a research topic. But it wasn't really until then that. Uh, 
that I thought I was uh, I was going to go into research. Uh, I mean, I had some phases when I was a kid. You know, my dad was an engineer and uh, architect, and he had the chemistry book lying around. And when I was 10 years old, I was carrying it around and memorizing formulas for H2O and CO2. And and my parents kind of indulged me in my in my odd uh, uh, fantasies. And and you know, they created a little fake lab where I was experimenting and accidentally burned down the the whole stairs and second part of the, <laughs> the floor because I lit something on fire that you know went all and my science experiment went very wrong. Um, and so I've always had you know uh, an interest in in science. But it, it didn't really lead me anywhere until until that point in uh, graduate school. Yeah. Okay. And then so okay. So it was a, it was a bit of a bumpy ride to get to the PhD program. Um, and then once you were there, did you find that research suited you really well and it just sort of got monotonically better, or were there were there ups and downs uh, and and moments of questioning throughout that as well? <laughs> Yeah, it really clicked for me at the time. It yeah. it, it, it did. Uh, there were definitely ups and downs, but um, I realized when I started the PhD um, that really this was my jam. You know, I had found uh, the stuff that I'm interested in. You know, I loved reading. I loved learning. I loved having conversations with people about interesting things. And and perhaps uh, more so than most people, my whole life has been rather unstructured. Uh, both in you know the way I grew up, where I lived, my my family situation, uh, everything about it has been fairly unstructured, and I kind of like uh, I don't like structure very much, and so the PhD was just perfect for me. Nobody was following me around. Um, I didn't have deadlines very much. I could just do what I wanted to do and be on my own schedule, make my own rules, determine my own progress. And some people find that really annoying and and uh, challenging and uh, makes it hard to, to get anything done and procrastinate and so on. But, but for me, I was always kind of used to making, setting my own deadlines and I have a very high degree of intrinsic motivation to do stuff and find things out. And so I was always kind of busy that way and, and making my own schedule and setting my own structure and, and activities. And so I loved that part of the PhD and I decided, you know, I don't want to trade, I don't want to give that up for anything um, in terms of the, the amount of freedom you get. And, and over, the, over the years, I've learned that it's not for everyone, and not everyone appre actually appreciates that kind of freedom. And that's, that's totally fine. But for me, it was really eye-opening. I love the subject matter. I love the, um, you know, the actual idea of, of, of academia and doing research. I was completely sold on it and really never looked, uh, looked back. Now, there were ups and downs between, you know, what am I doing? Is, is what I'm doing meaningful? And how can, I, how can I do research that's meaningful? And, you know, I'm kind of... I've, I've studied this topic for four years now. I'm kind of getting bored with it. And, you know, kind of the usual stuff that people go through, but but no, you know, nothing more existential, so to speak. So um, I think one of, uh, that, that sounds like an incredible advantage, having a sort of natural propensity for doing unstructured uh, work and tasks. Uh, certainly it's not something that everyone shares. And I think a lot of people, when they're starting out in their PhD, find that that's the most difficult thing as the as a sort of meta skill to learn in addition to like okay well how do you do research how do you you know all, all of the sort of uh sort of first order skills that you have to uh learn so do you have any um best practices uh that you've sort of noticed over the year that you do that perhaps um uh give you uh that sort of comfortability with unstructured work or uh, that you find that other people don't necessarily do that uh, you, you you will advise them to, to consider trying? 
Yeah, this is a good question. I'm always a bit hesitant to recommend things to other people because I know my own journey was a strange combination of, you know, timing, luck and, and my own personal history, which, which, you know, may not work for other people. To some extent, I think my preference for things that are unstructured also has to do with some, you know, more negative and adverse events uh, uh, that you know, created those situations that kind of forced me to, to deal with uh, with that kind of uh, lifestyle. But, um, you know, I wouldn't want to recreate those experiences for other people. I think they've been useful for me, but perhaps, you know, not something that uh, uh, that you necessarily want to uh, uh, want to go through. What I will say, though, is that the most useful thing for me, though, is to, to tie task, anything you have to do, and it's unstructured, you don't know, to tie it to something that you're really interested in and motivated about. Um, because I often observe that the, the most difficult thing for people to do is to, to, to follow through on something or to put enough time in or to, to figure out what to do uh, first. And what I always do is I always tie whatever I need to do to something that I'm interested in uh, intrinsically. And I think this plan works as long as there's something that you're actually interested in. So um, whether it's um, doing a literature review, um, I try to, you know, motivate myself by the topic or things that are related or what I'm going to get out of the literature review or a publication or something that excites me uh, and then focus on that and then complete the task sort of as a, as a byproduct of, of whatever is the larger motivating idea here. So, um, you know, it can get a bit abstract, you know, people go through a PhD and say, well, I, ultimately I want to do something else. And then, you know, but, but you know, the, as, a, as, a, as a thing in itself, you know, that that's kind of difficult to, to, to motivate yourself for three years if, if you know that you don't want to go into to academia, for example. So I know that is a struggle for um, for some students. Um, but often I found that uh, even doing analyses, right, uh, um, and, and, and working through those, it's kind of, you know, what am I doing it for? What's the end product and why does that excite me that kind of helps me set deadlines and goals and incremental ways of getting to the actual exciting thing? So whenever I write a paper, for example, there are things that are not exciting, uh, but I kind of set goals and incremental goals and, and, and keep in mind why am I doing it and, and what's the, the ultimate sort of reward and benefit from, from what I'm getting out of it. Um, sometimes that's talking to other people about it. Sometimes that's, um, um, you know, uh, it's part of a, a bigger thing. Maybe it's, you know, if you feel that um, research is, is about, you're not getting enough impact or, 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 or other things out of the research. I know some students are very, you know, keen to make a difference with their research. You know, write a blog post about what you're doing. Do something else that you find more exciting, but at the same time, kind of make progress with what you're working on. That's kind of how I do things. That works well. I've met some people who are not excited about anything um, and who don't have really an intrinsic motivation to do research or to, um, you know, publish or teach, you know. That's another thing. Why, you know, why making slides? Yet you're TAing, yet you're doing research, you know. I try to think about, well, why well, I'm actually doing this, right? I'm excited about uh, the, the, the process of learning and teaching and, and seeing the ultimate response from students. And so I try to kind of, you know, work through uh, the process from, uh, from that perspective. But I've met, it's rare, but I've met, you know, one or two individuals who, who don't seem generally excited uh, about anything uh, research related and they are doing a PhD. And I think it's really tough for the, you know, few people that, um, that can find something that, that really motivates them. Um, so and, yeah. I, I want to touch on something that you mentioned a couple times throughout there. And you, you, you said when you were a, a grad student, you were sort of 
uh, posing this question to yourself, how do I do something that's important? How do I make an impact on something more than just a very narrow, specialized uh, contribution to psychology as an academic field? And certainly, uh, to a very large extent, you've done a great job at um, uh, addressing that and working towards that. So how, how did you process that when you were early on in your career? You mean what did I do about it or how did I think about yeah, well, how you to were, have impact? You were asking, asking this question, how do I make, take my research in a direction that's oh, going yeah. to mean something to society? Yeah, you know, I was I was working on so when I started out, you know, I was excited. I, it, during my master's degree, I took this class on physics of climate change. It was just a, a, a you know an elect, elective course. There was no relevance other than me just wanting to learn more about the, the climate sort of science that was going on at the time. And I just revolutionized my thinking about climate change as a psychological problem, and I really wanted to study it for my doctoral dissertation because at the time, very few people were thinking of of the psychology of climate change at the time. And um, I just knew that I that I that it was such an important topic uh, that I needed to study this. And then as I was actually studying it, um, you know, it became clear to me at one point that at the end of the day, who's going to read all of my work about you know how people form risk perceptions of climate change or you know how to engage people with the issue of climate change or you know any any sort of research about. Um, the psychological dimensions of the climate problem. I thought my mother is going to read it. You know, she's going to say good job. Um, and, you know, maybe my dad, um, you know, my partner. And, 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 you know, I was just, I was starting to feel like it all didn't matter. Yeah. And I think, you know, when, when you, when you study climate change in particular as a, as a social issue, um, you get that feeling a lot, but, but I, you know, I, I was already kind of depressed enough about, about the problem itself. Uh, and so I thought, how am I going to have an impact? How am I going to have an impact with, with this research? And I really thought a lot about this. And I really felt a strong motivation at the time to, to write about what I was doing and to get the word out about studying um, for social scientists to consider this, this sort of problem of climate change from, from a psychological angle. Um, and, and what social scientists, you know, could potentially, uh, and behavioral scientists could potentially contribute uh, to this debate. And that's really where um, I felt I was deriving motivation and inspiration from, writing blogs. You know, I got uh, a blog at Scientific American Mind at the time, and it's been, you know, it's been almost 10 years that I've been working with the editor at Scientific American on, you know, writing. And he would he would invite me to start writing about you know, research and popular articles, and that's kind of where I developed a sense for, for how to write these articles. Um, as, as we were talking about earlier, some people have a Psychology to Today blog or some other outlet. Um, I started doing interviews, and I started, um, you know, doing outreach. And, and that's really where I realized that, um, you know, that's one way um, to expose the public the taxpayer, you know, people who pay taxes and, and, you know, stuff that funds our research, really show them what, what it is that we're doing and how we're spending people's money and what the what the end result is. And I found people are really excited by that. They are really interested. And it's an interesting two-way conversation that you can have with um, um, with both experts in other fields and the general public. And, 
it really took off from there and I've, I've kept doing that and I do a lot of it and it is tiring it takes a lot of work and and it means less time for for research sometimes uh, but but it's one of the things that excites me uh, and it's one of the things that I've made primary in my in my research career it's kind of like um, a co a positive co-benefit when I do something I try to think about how to have impact with it um, and sometimes I feel like I've done enough uh, outreach and and um, you know policy oriented conversations and interviews and I just want to focus on theory and and you know really go back to the the, the building blocks of science and think about theory uh, for a while until I have a new idea and then I want to I want to put it out there and so that's kind of my my process and now if you ask me if if, if somebody would take that ability away from me would I still enjoy doing science. I don't know. I do intrinsically enjoy the scientific process, but but it would be a big, big issue for me if I wasn't able to do what I do currently. So, um, yeah, so there, there definitely seems to be a, um, you know, it, it's the kind of it's a kind of snowball effect, right, where you start with a, a small thing and you're able to get bigger and bigger opportunities over time. And it sounds like that sort of initial Scientific American Mind blog um, uh, was one of those early things for you. So how exactly did that come about? That's a good question. I have to, I have to think about that. Um, you have I, to delve into the archives here. Yeah, delve into the archive. That's, that's right. Um, I think it initially, I think the story was this. I had written an article about pro-sociality and charitable giving. And I noticed there was a lot of interest from charities in, in how to, you know, think about why people donate. I had a friend who was an editor for a magazine in San Francisco, and she thought it'd be really interesting for me to write uh, a little piece for their for their magazine. That's what's called Ode, Ma Ode Magazine. I don't know if it still exists. It was my first popular article I've ever done. And it was it was a fun process. And she told me about Scientific American and uh, the, I think about uh, Scientific American. And so I went to the pages and saw a mind block. Um, at the bottom, there was an email address um, that said, are you interested in writing for Scientific American? Email, you know, email here. And, um, and that's, that's how it went. You know, I was a doctoral student at the time. I wasn't getting fancy invitations. And so uh, I just took, up a, took it upon myself to email the editor. And, uh, and that's how things got started. And I said, sure, what's your idea? You know, can you send me a draft? And then they send you some comments back, and, and it kind of goes from there. And often when I talk to my, my own students and, and also other students, they, you know, the option of just reaching out doesn't always, it's not always the first option people think about. Um, and I think, why not just reach out to people and see what happens? And that's, that's kind of, that's been my strategy all along. When I was in graduate school, I reached out to, um, the Yale program on climate change communication, they, they were doing the leading research on you know, climate change psychology, and I didn't have an advisor who was particularly uh, knowledgeable on that subject. I had a wonderful advisor, but not somebody who was particularly knowledgeable on that subject. And I sent Anthony Lezowitz, the director of that institute, an email. I thought I would never get an email back, uh, but I did. And we started a conversation, and I ended up spending most of my PhD years at Yale working, uh, working with him. And how, you know, uh, how much of a coincidence is that? It was just reaching out. And actually, somebody being kind enough to give you an opportunity that you could then uh, benefit from. And I found that lots of people do want to give people opportunities, and so just reaching out—that's really that's really my strategy. 
So those are, I think, two really good examples of times where, in a sense, you got lucky, um, which is something that you mentioned earlier. But, I mean, lucky in the sense that you put yourself out there and just as easily as they got back to you, they could have, your email could have been lost forever in, in, in their inbox or whatever. Um, and uh, to me, especially talking to you know so many people who have gone on to have these really successful careers, there's so many of these moments of just magical randomness or luck or whatever you want to call it. So are there any other moments like that um, where you feel like you got profoundly lucky in a way that set you up for the future that you, you can recall in your career? Oh yeah, definitely. I, and I think you know uh, uh, we we should appreciate luck um, and and the role of luck in our success. Um, I think perseverance is also worth something. Um, if you don't get a response, just email someone again. And I can tell you, you know, unfortunately, I try to respond to everyone, but you know, we get so many emails, it's just not possible. When but when somebody sends me multiple emails. Um, I probably you know won't won't forget or more likely to reply because they've reminded me several times that um, that they've emailed me. And so I think perseverance counts for um, for something too. Um, definitely, you know that uh, at that time, you know my CV was was relatively brief. You know, I had written some stuff on climate change, and I, I you know I would like to think or I think that Tony kind of took a, a chance on me. Now, I have to say that the, of course, the university I was at, uh, you know, I benefited perhaps from the name of the of the university, which is not something one should should take lightly. Um, but um, it was still, you know, it was still an opportunity, and I tried to make really the most out of it. I think when you're given an opportunity, it's really important to try to make the most out of it, so that you get another opportunity. And I think that's really that's really the key thing is that not to become um, complacent with it, uh, because, you know, there, there won't always be more opportunities. Sometimes you make opportunities, sometimes you get opportunities, or sometimes it's a lucky combination. But yeah, at the time, you know, I was going on the job market. And, um, you know, I, uh, I had applied for some jobs. And although I didn't get, uh, uh, you know, all the jobs, somebody, somebody from, from Princeton uh, got back to me, Eldar, Eldar Shafir, and offered me a, a postdoc, and they said, "Why don't you come spend, you know, some years here at, at Princeton?" And, you know, again, it was. Um, they said, "You know, we think your, your research really on, on, you know, sustainability and climate change is really interesting." And I just had a, a good conversation uh, with some folks there, and and ended up going uh, going there. But but it's, you know, to some extent, it was again a, um, you know, an opportunity. Uh, to develop your um, your career further and uh, and, and and sort of so so it goes. I, I like to think that um, I've, I've benefited from from people's generosity uh, to entertain my uh, my my research proposals and and my ideas, and in turn have tried to uh, to to do the same because I think that's you know that's the, the nice and appropriate thing to do to uh, to, to to help each other because we're all standing on the on the shoulders of, of giants to to some extent, but. But yeah, um, when I applied to graduate school, you know, um, I got rejected from from some universities that I thought I would have a, a good uh, shot at. Um, but you know, I, I got an offer from another university that was much higher ranked, and I wasn't really I wasn't really sure why you know why they decided to both fund me and 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 do the off and, and give me an offer. Um, and so maybe it was fit, maybe it was something else, maybe it was luck. Um, but you know, once you're there. 
I think the challenge is to then make the most out of it and, and think of another opportunity that might help your career develop further. And I think that's where most or some people stop, but I think it, it's helpful to, to keep thinking um, about, about you know, what, what you're going to do next and what might be beneficial uh, for, for developing your, your career further. So what are you currently thinking about um, your next steps and what you'd like to improve at and uh, maybe the next sort of big frontiers you'd like to tackle or however, however you think of it? In terms of research? Well, or, I or mean, it, it depends on what you're, uh, you know, where you're at right now. It could be something low levels and I'm trying to get better as, you know, a mentor doing this or, uh, yes, there's a whole new research program I want to embark on or, oh, I'd like to write a book next or what, whatever it might be for you. What are the things that you're thinking about for the sort of, you know, the, what are you personally thinking about for the future? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um I, I like to think that, that I've had some fantastic mentors in, in my career. Um, and so both in terms of, of science, in terms of, of you know learning about how to do science. And to this day, I try to strive to deliver a similar standard for, uh, for my students. But you know that is something that you need to continually work on. I think it's nice that you said mentoring. I think that is a, a you know, a continuous uh, work in work in progress. Um, I, you know, I benefited from uh, great mentorship and I think it's just so important. And so I tried, you know, from your very first student to, you know, it doesn't matter how many students you have, you get different students, different backgrounds, different levels, different uh, individuals need different kind of attention. So I think it's always an opportunity to, to try to, um, continue to develop your, your mentorship skills. Um, and, and that also involves, and I think this is really key, giving your students opportunities um, in the same way that you're offered opportunities. And, and, and I often see this in our field is that it, you know, it can be quite competitive and, and, and other things going on, but I think it's important to, to, to you know, actually provide opportunities for students to develop um, their own careers. Um, so mentorship is definitely something uh, that's always on my mind. I'm also writing a book, which is a whole nother challenge and something I've always wanted to do. Uh, I've always wanted to write a book and, and I've just put it off in, in favor of writing blogs and, and other things. And I found it really difficult to actually find the time to, to write a book and not do something else. And I'm going on sabbatical later later this year. Um, finally, to, to um, you know, have some time to myself to, to think about these issues. But I found writing a book is actually a, um, quite a bit of a time challenge. But I love doing it, and I love um, I, 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 I really want to develop my um, writing skills further in terms of writing for, for different kinds of, of audiences. You know, when you're writing journal articles all the time, um, it's not the same as writing a book for a general audience. So that's another really interesting opportunity. And I think by authoring books for the general public that comes with its own set of, uh, you know, responsibilities and, and interests and, uh, and activities. So I definitely, uh, I'm going to explore that further. Um, and then, you know, there is, um, there's always the question, um, of, of what to do next with, um, with your research program. And I think a sabbatical is, is a nice, uh, you know, nice time to, to think about the future and, and new ideas and, uh, and how to, um, how to develop that. Um, but yeah, overall, um, I think that um, you know when it comes to um, learning, it really never ends as a, as an academic, both in terms of research and in terms of being a mentor and a writer. And so you're always you're always learning. But if you enjoyed that process, then 
I would think that's a good thing. So we're sort of bumping up against the uh, allotted time here, and I want to be respectful of uh, your time because I know you have, it's almost 5 p.m. now, so you have the majority of your workday in front of you. Um, but uh, do you have time for one more question? Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, one thing that I'm really interested in is, that, so you, a lot of your ideas seem very important, as in they have the potential for a significant societal impact. I'm curious, uh, which do you think is most important if you had to single out just one? And when you say single out just one, you mean research ideas or are we talking about Oh, you know, feel free to interpret it, but I'm, yes, I'm guess I'm, I'm kind of thinking something along the lines of, well, I have a paper that argues X, and I think the most significant, you know, contribution to my research would be if X were widely appreciated and or adopted, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, the most, the most important insight from, from my research, um, or career. Or, or I mean, I, I don't mean to, uh, to have to be, uh, you know, to sort of go against your natural inclination for, for Dutch modesty. Uh, right. do, uh, so, so you don't have to frame it in terms of most important, but, but, but you know, you have everything from uh, misinformation, inoculation, socially situated nudges. These right. are lots of really important social things that you're talking about. If you just had to pick one that was like, ah, that's the thing that I want everyone to know about and be able to appreciate and, and implement, but which one would you, would, you, would you pick? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. I, I, I have to think about it a little bit. It kind of reminds me um, of when I was a graduate student early on, I had an advisor at the, at the LSC who, um, who, who in, 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 you know, kind of these words told me to, to not waste time with, you know, incremental ideas. And I think people would have conflicting opinions maybe on, on that advice, especially when we talk about replication science and things like that. Um, but I was really taken aback by what he said in terms of don't waste your time with incremental ideas. Um, and it, it did really inspire me because, you know, once you go into the weeds with your PhD thesis, it becomes very technical and niche, and, and that's really important for a PhD thesis. But I think the ability to zoom out and, and think about what are the big questions and, and what, what's important for people to pay attention to um, has really become a driving force in a lot of my career. Uh, and it would be hard for me to pick one thing, but I will say um, that one of the one of the most enduring lessons that I've found in in all of our research is perhaps the idea um, that, and we talked about inoculation, uh, uh, pre-bunking, as we call it, um, is more effective than than debunking, and I don't think that that relates just to misinformation. Um, I really think that the idea is prevention is better than cure, and, and I'll tell you why. Yes, but when it comes to fake news, you know, the continued influence of information means that, uh, you know, once we've been exposed to a falsehood, it's very difficult to correct and dislodge. And so, you know, uh, pre-bunking and inoculating people against falsehoods is much more effective to begin with. Um, but also, when you talk about outbreaks, uh, it's better for people to be prepared um, to withstand 
a negative information or negative influence or negative effects when they've you know when they've been properly uh, trained to begin with. When you talk about climate change, obviously prevention um, is better than uh, than cure. Um, and so a lot of a lot of it actually just comes down to thinking proactively about the future, going through scenarios um, where you try to anticipate what's going to happen next, and then um, kind of use that uh, to uh, to create an intervention. Almost, you know, think about some sort of virus, um, whether it's an informational virus or, or another kind of virus, and then there's still the uh, the antidote. And that's kind of what a lot what, uh, what our lab is doing with a lot of social issues. What's what's the problem? Um, and can we sort of distill that into a social science antidote and implement that before more bad things are going to happen? And I think we found that that's a very general principle, whether it comes to radicalization, whether it comes to climate change, misinformation, uh, public health. It kind of, you know, I found that to be a, a fairly broad, generalizable principle um, that, I'm, that I'm currently pursuing and would like to see embraced um, more fully. We've been talking to Facebook, WhatsApp, Google, U.S. government, U.K. government, European Commission, um, and I've pursued it quite passionately. Passionately, because I do believe in in the principle, and I, you know, it's it hasn't been really been on the agenda. A lot of strategies, a lot of policy strategies are reactive rather than proactive. Um, so that's that's the one thing that currently on the top of my mind that that I would like to see um, changed and uh, and implemented. Well, I. I uh, believe that Facebook traditionally is um, not opposed to working with uh, things that are affiliated with Cambridge. Um, so <laughs> hopefully uh, they'll take you up on that. But I, you know, I, I'm really interested to. So I agree that. So that's that's I think a really great answer to that question. And I want to back up a little bit and say, okay, so I I find this idea of doing uh, big big research rather than sort of incremental little questions, very compelling. And you're right, as a graduate student, it's very difficult to do that. So, I mean, throughout your mentoring career or your own career trying to do that, what do you think uh, allowed you to do bigger jumps uh, in your own research uh, or in the research of your students than just sort of smaller, incremental, uh, easier to bite off, but ultimately, uh, you know, less... Uh, emphatic research. Yeah, that's a good question, and I, I, I guess I also want to clarify that it's very necessary for people to do incremental research. Uh, also, as a scientist, I personally also engaged in incremental research uh, just for for the for the process. And but I remember when I was doing my PhD, you know, I was really into the weeds about. Uh, models of, of judgment, decision-making, risk perception, and, and kind of, you know, carving out your own contribution. And it was actually very quite specific. And, and I noticed that in, in, in my students sometimes that they'd like to work on bigger ideas. And, and that's kind of not, you know, I think it's difficult because you have to finish your PhD, which is, you know, very detailed and, and specifically about, you know, uh, one topic, obviously, or related topics. And it has to be quite into the weeds and, and technical and, and incremental in some ways. And then afterwards, you get the freedom to kind of work on a whole range of things. But I see more and more now that students, you know, one strategy that, that I've seen students do is they take on different kinds of projects, right? Outside of their PhD, they work on a variety of projects. 
uh, some bigger impact than others. Uh, but if you have the time, you know, it's a great idea if you want to branch out and diversify, work on more uh, than just your PhD research. Maybe there's some synergy in, in other areas that you're active in that are useful for your own thinking and your own PhD. Uh, but I would say, yeah, feel free to actually work on, on things that are not your PhD. And that's also a way to remain excited, maybe, and get motivated if you feel that you've been working on the same topic uh, for a long time, as long as it's not, you know, too, too distracting. Um, and then another strategy for me was to actually reach out and do uh, public engagement and, and, and more popular science um, about my research topic more generally uh, and, and the research that I was doing as a way to motivate myself uh, to keep going with some of the more incremental uh, modeling steps and, you know, um, the sort of stuff that you just have to go through and that, you know, kind of broader outreach was a way to keep me personally motivated uh, to, you know, to finish all of the details. Um, and my advisors told me, you know, multiple times that once you're done, you know, work on this, work on that. And, and that's, you know, it was kind of freeing also when you were done, when you've done your doctoral dissertation, once you've really, really thought about a problem, worked it out, uh, and and written something on it. Um, yeah, it was it was kind of freeing that that feeling that you can now work on anything and you know the world is your oyster. And I kind of embraced that and I started working on totally different things, some risky projects, uh, some some you know uh, kind of following up on what I was doing before and and radically different things. And I kind of I kind of like that idea. And I think some people are very risk averse. But my advice would be that you know sometimes the bigger ideas and the big impact ideas uh, they're risky they're they're risky projects and they have a high failure ratio um, and not everything pans out but you got to place your bets on some some big ideas and try to pursue them and even if they don't work out um, you know other ideas and other projects will will come along and that's kind of how how I've done it you know some some ideas have really failed quite miserably and others have really paid off you know I never. You know, when we started the Bad News Project um, in the game, we never thought um, it would actually get to, to this stage. Um, and uh, But it did. And, and we invested a lot of resources in this quite early on uh, with no guarantee that it was going to go somewhere other than our, you know, intuition and, and some initial experiments we were doing. Um, yeah, and other stuff doesn't doesn't pan out, and that's and that's fine. But I think you know, big ideas uh, take some commitment and going out of your comfort zone uh, to some extent, and combining new ideas, interdisciplinarity, and reaching out to other disciplines. So I think those are all strategies um, that one can use um, to not feel so incremental about what it is that uh, that you're doing. But but I just want to reiterate that you know I, I also do some incremental stuff, and I think it's important for um, for science. Um, and it's important for, for big ideas to, um, to, to be evidence-based and, 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 and rigorous and, and uh, to not get carried away um, too early. You know, with a lot of our interventions, we, we keep them from, we're sitting on a, a ton right now that I'm super excited about for, for public release and that I hope are going to have big impact, but we're sitting on them because we want to make sure that we're doing all of the incremental science, right, of testing the interventions in control settings and tuning, fine tuning and, and doing all of it. Uh, and it takes years. Um, but yeah, I, I think ultimately uh, it's, it's, a bit of, it's a bit of both, um, but definitely um, thinking about the bigger picture of why does this matter? That's really the question I guess you can pose yourself is like when you're working on something, why does this matter? And, and once you've got an answer to that, maybe that's a stepping stone to, uh, to a bigger idea. So, Sander, you mentioned uh, earlier that um, 
you feel like people have given you big opportunities, and so you um, uh, try to in turn give other people opportunities. And I want to sort of end here by um, saying thank you for the opportunity which you gave to me, which was that I applied to the PhD program in your university to work with you. Uh, I'm, of course, from the United States, and, and your university, uh, Cambridge, is, is in the UK. And um, the, it turns out, and I didn't know this at the time, the uh, application systems are rather vastly different between the, the, the two. And so I submitted an application to Cambridge, which was just wildly inappropriate um, uh, compared to what uh, you know, you're actually supposed to submit. And um, you wrote me back very shortly after you received that application saying, okay, well, hey, um, you know, Cody, thank you for, for thinking of, of this, but you're, you, you kind of missed the mark here, buddy. And then you, you explained to me a little bit more about what they, uh, what a, like, you know, an actual application would look like. Um, and well, then, I, okay, yeah, yeah. And so I, and I, and I turned around, I did, I, you know, put one of those together. And um, ultimately, I still got rejected from Cambridge. But uh, several months later, uh, I um, put together, a, you know, a um, an application at Oxford. And um, with what I learned in having gone through a failed uh, application process for Cambridge with you, uh, actually uh, ended up being successful. And so. Um, uh, to, to some uh, potentially large, potentially minor extent, I, I owe uh, my spot here in Oxford uh, to you. And so I want to thank you for uh, how attentive you are in answering emails to people uh, and, and applications from people who may not have all of their shit together. Uh, and so thank you. Thank you very much uh, for that. I, I think it, it, you know, it speaks volumes about uh, your character and your uh, willingness to help uh, other young scientists. You know, my, my pleasure. And I certainly didn't have all my stuff together when I was applying to graduate school. And so, I, you know, I do appreciate the opportunities people have given me. And I remember your application and I thought, you know, this is a great profile and you had really, really interesting ideas. It just, as you said, you know, it wasn't kind of wrapped in the, in the, in the right format yet. But now you're, now you're a successful uh, PhD student at Oxford with a wonderful podcast. And, um, you know, so that's, you know, wonderful uh, to see that, you know, that's been your journey. And one of the things I realized is that people in my lab are actually extremely diverse and have very uh, sometimes interdisciplinary and varied background. You know, there's a kind of standard social psychology package, um, which I know very well, and we, we don't really follow that, that, that package uh, that neatly. We have people with, you know, uh, kind of renaissance woman or man backgrounds in, in our lab doing very different things and, and you know, uh, coming from from various uh, different disciplines and backgrounds. And maybe that reflects my own journey to some extent, but I found that that creates a recipe, a recipe uh, for really interesting um, ideas. And so one thing I've noticed in sometimes in our field, uh, whether it's cognitive or social psychology, is that people are a bit resistant to thinking outside of the box of, of what is a good uh, social psychology PhD or student or, or program. And I think a lot of the people perhaps that you've talked to that are successful have actually ventured you know, outside of, of the standard model um, and, and just pursued ideas that they thought were, were good and interesting regardless of um, where people are coming from and what, 
what their journey has been. Um, and I, I do regret that you know we're not able to give everyone an opportunity. And as much as I like to, um, I, I try to reply to everyone. I encourage everyone to email me if you're listening to this podcast. You know, I, I do encourage everyone to to get in touch. Um, even you know if if eventually it, it doesn't work out, we can have a a nice conversation and perhaps have a two-way exchange and, and learn something from uh, from from one another. Um, and it's 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 uh, it's somewhat challenging that as your job gets busier, you get more students. There's more pressures. There's less time, uh, and you need to get more organized and and, and need more resources to uh, uh, to you know to keep things going. Which ultimately means that you're not always in a position to give everyone the amount of attention and uh, that you'd like to. Uh, which is hard for me because I, I, and perhaps other people do, I, I very much recognize um, the importance of, um, of opportunities. And uh, I hope I can, you know, continue uh, uh, to pass that on to, uh, well, to others. Well, thanks for your time today, Tanner. This has been fun. Yeah, my pleasure. It was super fun. Excellent. Thank you for listening to my interview with Sander Vanderlinden. Uh, he was a lot of fun to talk to, and I think he has a lot of really interesting insights. And um, I think one of the things that's very impressive about his career is how he has done simultaneously both uh, big idea scientific work and then created obvious connections with what people outside of professional psychology would be interested in uh, based off the findings of his research. Um, and so as he, as he says, you know, there's uh, certainly lots of room and lots of value in incremental science and people have different sort of preferences for what they're going for. But there's no doubt about it that um, doing big, big work is important and it's hard to do. And, uh, you know, sort of synthesizing ideas from different domains and bringing them together in a way that makes people think about something that they're interested in in a way that they maybe haven't thought about it before. And Sanders done such a great job of this in his career. And um, I think it's certainly something that I'm striving for in, in my own career. And um, yeah, I, 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 I love his goal-oriented attitude towards the way he um, structures his tasks and his times and, and all that sort of stuff. And so um, certainly it's something that I'm, I'm working on uh, achieving to uh, the, the best level that I can and am uh, you know, sort of uh, figuring out ways to best do that in my own scientific work. And then, of course, bringing that to a larger audience in a way that uh, makes it clear to them what the connections to their daily lives and uh, you know, the, what the, wor the connection to the world around them is. So anyway, thank you for listening today. And as always, you can connect with me on Twitter at Cody Commerce through my newsletter, codycommerce.com uh, slash newsletter. And uh, you can send me an email at cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback uh, or ideas or people you'd like to hear on the show, please do send me a message. And um, also, please subscribe to Cognitive Evolution on whichever platform you may be listening through. So thanks for taking the time to listen today, and I will see you back here next week. Thank you.